Brian McClanahan Show, episode 301. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You'll find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. When you do enroll, you get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. So you can either click on that class or just enroll and then check the email and you get the link to it. It's free of charge, right? So get it. It's my gift to you for becoming a member. And of course, members get the best deals on forthcoming courses. They get the best coupons. It's a win-win. You get great stuff. I've got eight, actually nine classes now available for purchase. Nine classes, excuse me available for purchase, and you're going to want to get all nine of them. I know it. My newest class is the American Presidents. It's a great course. Um, so it's a, it's a look at all 45 men who have been American presidents. There's 44 under the U.S. Constitution, one that I cover that wasn't a president under the U.S. Constitution, but still an American president. So you want to get that class. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You've got book plates there. If you want my autograph on one of my books, you can purchase one of those. I'll send out the book plate. You can also go click on that shop tab on my webpage. You can get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and a whole bunch of cool stuff. You can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, where I teach there as well. All kinds of great ways to support the show, support what I do. This is, of course, gratis, right? This podcast is free of charge. So anything you want to do to help me continue to do this, I greatly appreciate it. Also, send your show ideas, share my podcast on social media, go out and rate it where you get your podcasts. All those ways to help expand the Think Locally, Act Locally Army, which is what we're building in America. Okay. Speaking of an army, speaking of... Commander-in-Chief, which I am not, um, I want to talk about a speech. Now, we're getting all coronavirus all the time, and I'm sure people are getting worn out by this. But it is exposing some things in America. I'm not going to talk about the coronavirus itself. Hopefully, you're staying safe wherever you are and wherever you're listening to this. But I do want to talk about the American response to the coronavirus because I think it's not new. I mean, this is what we're seeing in America. Now, the reaction to it is also not new. And I've seen people say, well, my gosh, Americans won't tolerate being shut in and being told what to do by the, by the uh, government. Sure, they will. And I know they will because they've done it before. They did it before in 1933. They did it when Franklin Roosevelt was elected president and when he promised in his inaugural address to tackle the national emergency. Now, most people have never read this inaugural address. They know a couple of lines out of it. Of course, they've all heard it. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. One of the most famous lines in American history. What we're going to do today in this particular podcast is I'm going to go through this inaugural address. And I'm going to talk about it and how it fits historically. One of the things I'm going to say about this inaugural address, it is perhaps one of the two or three most important, I would say in the top three, most important presidential speeches in American history. 
If you want to put the top three, it would be Washington's farewell address, which wasn't really a speech. It was written to send out in newspapers. And then, of course, read. He didn't deliver it himself in person, though. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and, of course, Franklin Roosevelt's first inaugural. These are the three watershed presidential addresses in American history. One's very short, just a little over 50 words. One is extremely long in the farewell address. Roosevelt's inaugural, first inaugural, is not that long. It only takes about 15 minutes to read it. So we've got enough time in this podcast to not only read the whole thing, but also explain some of it. And the inconsistencies in it, and also the contradictions in it. I mean, this is one of those addresses that's really going to set the stage for the future of the American presidency. You can say Lincoln's Gettysburg Address really set the stage for a distortion of American history, which was the American nation, the idea that the Declaration is somehow it's a founding document when it's really a defounding document, that it somehow establishes uh, political principles beyond self-determination and independence, which it doesn't. Um, so we can look at Lincoln's Gettysburg Address in that way. We can look at Washington's Farewell Address as being one of those documents that outlines foreign policy for several presidencies, up until about the Polk administration, maybe. But certainly, uh, people were still talking about the uh, Washingtonian type of foreign policy into the late 19th century. So um, Washington's Farewell Address is very important. Also, this, this warning against factions, which, of course, I mean, Hamilton helped write this. Hamilton was as much of a factionalist as anyone else. Um, but I think Washington's farewell address is one of those things that's just going to be a trendsetter for a time, at least, in American history. And then, of course, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. We still talk about that. And if you take my course at McClanahan Academy on the Declaration of Independence, I get into Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. In fact, I, I spend quite a bit of time on that in that particular course because it's one of the more important parts of it. It's the distortion of the Declaration that becomes the key to understanding the Declaration. But this, fair, this, this inaugural address for Franklin Roosevelt, delivered uh, March 4th, 1933. So we're coming up, we just passed actually the, uh, the anniversary of this address, March 4th, 1933. Um, it's so important. It's so important for how we conceptualize the American executive, how the American executive has been transformed because of this inaugural address, because of the way Americans think about the American presidency following this inaugural address. And again, there are some real inconsistencies in it and that also contradictions that I want to talk about. So let's just begin. Um, there are some very famous lines, as I said, and we're going we're gonna to go through it all. So, Saturday, March 4th, 1933, first inaugural address of Franklin D. Roosevelt. He begins, I am certain that my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our nation impels. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Now, let me stop there in that first couple of lines. Is Franklin Roosevelt going to tell the truth in this inaugural address? Well, sort of. One thing he doesn't say, and he does bring up credit. The Great Depression was caused by an overexpansion of credit. 
And Roosevelt does rail against the central banking system, the Federal Reserve, and rightly so. But his solution is worse than the disease in many ways and what he proposes to do, at least in terms of constitutional power. And he actually refers to the Constitution. I'm going to get into all that. This is laughable in some of the things he says, but he doesn't really tell the whole truth. He skirts around it, but he doesn't really tell the whole truth. He continues, nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, revive, and will prosper. Now, stop there again. Think about some of the things Trump has said recently. I mean, he's echoing Franklin Roosevelt. See, all the presidents do from here on out is just echo Franklin Roosevelt. This is why Franklin Roosevelt is such a transformational figure. Woodrow Wilson established the blueprint for doing all this stuff, but Roosevelt understood how to make it work more than more than Wilson ever could. Roosevelt understood how to make it work. This is why people would say Roosevelt shades towards demagoguery. I mean, he loved Mussolini. He loved this entire idea of a national consciousness taking over and solving problems. Hitler also liked Mussolini. There's a great book entitled Three New Deals by Schivelbush, which gets into Roosevelt's New Deal, Mussolini's essentially New Deal, and Hitler's New Deal, and how they were so similar in the use of propaganda and other things to make these things work. So then he gives the most famous line of the address. So, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. In every dark hour of our national life, a leadership of frankness and vigor has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves which is essential to victory. I am convinced that you will again give that support to leadership in these critical days. So everyone's heard that before. As he's thundering, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. He's almost singing it. If you listen to it, the way that he presents this, I mean, it's perfect rhetorically. Perfect. But it's... So wrong. This is the Puritan in Roosevelt coming out. On the podcast episode I did on liberty and the different types of liberty, there is the puritanical form of liberty, which is liberty of the community, the freedom from fear and want. And this is exactly what Roosevelt is capitalizing on in that particular line of the speech, the freedom from fear and the freedom from want. You don't have to be afraid about being hungry or not having a job because King Franklin's going to provide one for you. You don't have to be afraid of wanting things because King Franklin will provide them for you. This is completely demagogic. But it's in, it's in line with this Puritan understanding of liberty. So some people would say that is liberty. Freedom from fear? I don't have to worry. I don't have to fret over having things. That's freedom. I can think about other things. This is, this is the draw to that type of liberty. The liberty of the community over the liberty of the individual. The community has liberty. You may not have as many liberties, but the community does. And you don't have to worry about some things because the community will take care of those things. He continues, In such a spirit on my part and on yours, we face our common difficulties. 
They concern, thank God, only material things. Values have shrunken to fantastic levels. Taxes have risen. Our ability to pay has fallen. Government of all kinds is faced by serious curtailment of income. Wait a second. If taxes have risen, then why would government be facing serious curtailment of income? You see, Roosevelt actually criticized Herbert Hoover for, being, for taxing and spending too much. And then he goes in and he taxes and spends more than anyone else in the history of the United States at that point. The means of exchange are frozen in the currents of trade and withered leaves of industrial enterprise lie on every side. Farmers find no markets for their produce. The savings of many years and thousands of families are gone. More important, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problems of existence and an equally great number toil with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. Well, I mean, this is what we're facing now. This is why the response from the Trump administration has been FDR. Because this is what Americans think the presidency has to do because of this particular speech and because of Franklin Roosevelt. Now, there's a difference between the coronavirus panic and the actual panic of 1929 into 1933. The panic of 1929 was caused by overexpansion of credit. It was caused by the Federal Reserve. The current panic is not caused by this. It's caused by the general government or the state government shutting everything down. It's caused by a virus. So the idea is as soon as it opens back up again, we're going to get right back to normal. I'm not so certain because the response by the federal government has been something that would create this type of panic, a 1929-type crash, again. Because the overexpansion of credit is going to create a massive financial problem for the United States. And we've just done it. Now, the only hope is that... In the future, all other countries will inflate their currency like the United States is doing. So therefore, we're not going to degrade the dollar any more than someone else is going to degrade the euro or the pound or anything else that's out there trading as a commodity, which is what the dollars trade as now. So that's the hope, that all this money will somehow just filter into the economy and we're all good. Prices will go up, but everybody's got more money. It's the, it's the theory that you can just keep printing because as long as prices go up and people get more money in their pockets, it really doesn't matter. But I'm not so certain that's going to be the case. We could be facing a 1929 crash after the coronavirus is over. That's the real fear. That's the real prospect. He continues, Yet our distress comes from no failure of substance. We are stricken by no plague of locusts. Compared with the perils which our forefathers conquered because they believed and were not afraid, we have still much to be thankful for. Nature still offers her bounty, and human efforts have multiplied it. Plenty is at our doorstep, but a generous use of its languishes in the very sight of, of the supply. Primarily, this is because the rulers of the exchange of mankind's goods have failed. Through their own stubbornness and their own incompetence, have admitted their failure and abdicated. Practices of the unscrupulous money changers stand indicted in the court of public opinion, rejected by the hearts and minds of men. This is very uh, populist, of course. Um, Stephen Knott argues this is Jeffersonian, and in some cases this speech is Jeffersonian. Now, I'm going to do a book review of Stephen Knott's assessment of the presidency at some point. It's awful, by the way. But he is right about the use of language here that's very Jeffersonian. And there's a reason for that. Because Franklin Roosevelt understood that America was generally Jeffersonian. You see, the Occupy Wall Street people have got some things right. There is a problem, a fundamental problem with central banking. The problem, though, is the fusion of government and finance, not the banking, not, not banking itself, but a fusion of banking and government that creates a massive 
economic catastrophe in many ways. You would question if, if the banks are going to get bailed out, which they are right now, why isn't it that they're not, as I said before, giving people three months not to pay a mortgage? They're already getting money. They're getting money to cover that. So why not say, all right, for three months, you don't have to pay your mortgage and you don't owe us anything for it. We'll just say you're three months later. We've already got you covered. Of course, that would also be unconstitutional, but we're already doing everything else unconstitutional. So I don't, I don't see where the rub is at times. True, they have tried, but their efforts have been cast in the pattern of an outworn tradition. Faced by failure of credit, they propose only the lending of more money. Stripped of the lure of profit by which to induce our people to follow their false leadership, they have resorted to exhortions, pleading tearfully for restored confidence. They know only the rules of a generation of self-seekers. They have no vision. Where there is no vision, the people perish. The money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. We may now restore that temple to the ancient truths. The measure of the restoration lies in the extent to which we apply social values more noble than mere monetary profit. Happiness lies not in the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement and the thrill of creative effort. The joy and moral stimulation of work no longer must be forgotten in the mad chase of profits. These dark days will be worth all they cost us if they teach us that our true destiny is not to be ministered unto, but to minister to ourselves and to our fellow men. Now, that's very Jeffersonian language. I mean, it certainly is. It's attacking a fusion of, of banking and the, the evils of banking. And, you know, but the Jefferson, the Jefferson tradition wasn't anti-banking per se. It was a fusion of government and banking. They thought they could deal with banking on its own and they could deal with government on its own, but you put the two together, it creates a big Frankenstein that's impossible to tame. This is what Hamilton did with the First Bank of the United States, which is why the Jeffersonians were so against it. If you read the literature, if you read what they're saying about banking, it's not banking per se they're against. It's the fusion of the state and banking that they're against. So the language is a little bit skewed here. It's not necessarily Jeffersonian in that he gets Jefferson right. It's Jeffersonian that people think this is Jeffersonian. Recognition of the falsity of material wealth as a standard of success goes hand in hand with the abandonment of the false belief that public office and high political position are to be valued only by the standards of pride and place and personal profit. There must be an end to a conduct in banking and in business which too often is given to a sacred trust a likeness of callous and selfish wrongdoing. Small wonder that confidence languishes, for it thrives only on honesty, on honor, on the sacredness of obligations, on faithful protection, on unselfish performance. Without them, it cannot live. Restoration calls, however, not for changes in ethics alone. This nation asks for action, and action now. So who's going to give it? Well, King Roosevelt. Now, before I get into the rest of this, I'm going to take a brief break for a second. We'll finish up with the second half of the speech on the other side. I'll see you in just a minute. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why, and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our 
higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 to present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, you've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum, or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise, but it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll. And I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about Franklin Roosevelt's first inaugural address and how important the speech is and all the things that are right and wrong with it. There's a lot wrong with it. and uh, But it is an important speech. You have to know it. I mean, if I was going to, if you were in my class, this is like going to class. Look, I can't teach on campus right now, so you're my class right now. Um, he continues in this particular speech. Our, um, our greatest primary task is to put people to work. This is no unsolvable problem if we face it wisely and courageously. So think about the, the this is where we get the idea of the government of the employer of last resort. And this is what we're seeing in America right now with the stimulus bill and everything else. Government as the employer of last resort. People can't get a job, they go work for the government. And, of course, we saw in the New Deal, this is exactly what Roosevelt did. You just put people to work sweeping sidewalks or whatever they can do, and it gives them some money. But that's the idea. He says, It can be accomplished in part by direct recruiting by the government itself, treating the task as we would treat the emergency of a war. But at the same time, through this employment, accomplishing greatly needed projects to stimulate and reorganize the use of our natural resources. Think about what he's saying here. And he's going to say this theme is going to be carried now through the rest of the speech. We're at war. We're at war against the economy. We're at war against the coronavirus. We're at war against terror. We're at war against... This is where the president says we're at war with all these things. And I'm going to... There's going to be something more profound about this, so I'll hold off. I'm not going to steal my own thunder yet, but... The language here is very clear. We're at war, and so the government's going to be the recruiter. The government's going to employ you. You're going to be marshaled in to the government. And he actually uses that, well, not marshal, but he uses this term, war and army. Again, we'll get there. He says, hand in hand with this, we must frankly recognize the overbalance of population in our industrial centers and by engaging on a national scale in a redistribution endeavor to provide a better use of the land for those best fitted for the land. This is interesting. He's attacking cities here. We're too industrialized. We need to get people back on farms. We need to get people doing things with the land. 
That's very much in line with I'll Take My Stand, which was in 1930. I mean, this is the, the, the distributionist movement, which I'll Take My Stand in many ways embraces. So did Who Owns America in 1936, though. Um, you know, that whole idea coming out of, of Europe and, of course, the United States, that you return land to the people, you get it away from corporations. and I mean, that's, it's very Jeffersonian in lots of ways. So, I mean, Roosevelt's on to something here. We've got too many people living in urban and suburban areas, so let's get people back out in the country again. Though, how you go about doing that is a whole other question. Even when we're looking at coronavirus, rural areas are not being hit as hard. Why? Because they're not cosmopolitan. These people didn't go to Europe and get the coronavirus. They didn't go to China. The only way they're getting it is if somebody comes into their town, and there's an article out there today that I read about, all, I mean, it's, it's saying, look, stay out. Urban dwellers, stay out of our small towns. We don't want you here while you've got coronavirus. You need to stay back and keep your coronavirus to yourself. This is the amazing thing about what's happening in some ways. States are actually waking up and saying, hey, you know what? I can close off my borders if I want to. I don't have to let you in. We can have checks. When you want to get into Florida, you got to take a temperature. If you're sick, you go home. We don't want you here. States can do these things, right? So, I mean, this is we're rediscovering some of these beautiful things of federalism, and that's great. I mean, you know, the fact is we want New Yorkers right now to stay in New York because they could be infected with this nasty virus, and if you don't have it in your community or very much of it, you don't want more people bringing it in. So there is some consistency here, or at least continuity between this speech and what's going on in America today. He says the task can be helped by definite efforts to raise the values of agricultural products and with this the power to purchase the output of our cities. It can be helped by preventing realistically the tragedy of the growing loss through foreclosure of our small homes and our farms. It can be helped by insistence that the federal, state, and local governments act forthwith on the demand that their costs be drastically reduced. Think about what he just said there. He says we should cut spending. He's going to increase spending. We're going to reduce the cost of these governments. Well, efficiency is what he's looking for more than cost. He should have said efficiency. And he does say it later on, but that's really what he's talking about. It can be helped by the Unifying of relief activities, which today are often scattered, uneconomical, and unequal. It can be helped by national planning for and supervision of all forms of transportation and of communications and other utilities which have a definitely public character. That's straight out of the Communist Manifesto. I mean, straight out of it. To nationalize these type of things. There are many ways in which it can be helped, but it can never be helped merely by talking about it. We must act and act quickly. And of course, this is where you get the idea that You've got to act as president in the first 100 days. You've got to do all this stuff because people expect you to do all this stuff in 100 days and get everything done. It's just complete ridiculousness, but it's just stupid. But, I mean, this is where we get this. I mean, so the, you get the stupid reporters that don't know anything. Uh, excuse me, Mr. President, what are you going to do in the first 100 days in office? I really wish we would have the president with a backbone enough to say nothing. I'm not going to do anything because the Constitution doesn't require me to. I gave a speech. I'm going to come in. We're going to start looking at everything. But 100 days, so what? I'm not going to come in and change everything in 100 days. That's what a king does. I mean, it would be great if we actually had a president with that kind of backbone to stand up and do that. I, I, would, I would applaud as loud as I could at that point. But you get these little knuckleheads that run around as reporters that don't really know anything. I mean, they, just, they went to journalism school, and they think they know how to write. And most of them can't. But still... 
uh, they went to journalism school, so they think they're going to be tough and they're going to ask tough questions. They don't like the president. They're going to go up and say, what are you going to do in the first 100 days when he doesn't give a response that they want? Well, we think that you should be doing this. Well, who cares what you think? In reality, who really cares what you think? Finally, in our progress toward a resumption of work, we require two safeguards against return of the evils of the old order. There must be a strict supervision of all banking and credits and investments. There must be an end to speculation with other people's money. And there must be provision for an adequate but sound currency. You would never get a president to talk about a sound currency at all again. I think that that ship has sailed so far off. It's so far out in the ocean now, it's never coming back. Like, I mean, it's sunk. It's sitting at the bottom of the ocean with the Titanic. But here we are, 1933, still talking about that. He says, these are the lines of attack. I shall presently urge upon a new Congress in a special session detailed measures for their fulfillment, and I shall seek the immediate assistance of the several states. The activist president. I'm going to call Congress into session, which he can do. It's constitutional. On extraordinary occasions, he can call Congress into session. And I'm going to ask that the states do all this. I'm going to direct the whole thing. I'm going to be the labor boss in chief. I'm going to be the economist in chief. I'm going to be the farmer in chief. I'm going to be the industrialist in chief. I'm going to be the I'm going to be the in chief of everything in America. Through this program of action, we address ourselves to putting our own national house in order and making income balance outgo. Our international trade relations, though vastly important, are a point of time and necessity secondary to the establishment of a sound national economy. I favor as a practical policy the putting of First things first. Oh my gosh, you didn't just say that. Internationalism not as important as America? Well, Roosevelt's clearly a racist. I mean, for this. He's clearly a racist. I mean, clearly. He said he's going to put America first. That means he's a racist. Obviously. I shall spare no effort to restore world trade by international economic readjustment, but the emergency at home cannot wait on that accomplishment. The basic thought that guides those specific measures of national recovery is not, unnar- not narrowly nationalistic. It is the insistence as a first consideration upon the interdependence of the various elements in all parts of the United States, a recognition of the old and permanently important manifestation of the American spirit of the pioneer. It is the way to recovery. It is the immediate way. It is the strongest assurance that the recovery will endure. This is many ways, again, Jeffersonian, the pioneer, the self-determinate independent streak. Rugged individualism. This is what he's appealing to here because he understands that's really the American character even in 1933. Not so sure that's the case anymore. Not when you have Pajama Boy and people running around on Twitter criticizing someone for trying to help. You know, the, the my pillow, Mike Lindell has said he's going to make masks. Well, you got some idiot running around on Twitter. Uh, well, if you've ever been hurt by my pillow, I mean, you bought the dang thing. You've been hurt by my pillow? Ridiculous. In the field of world policy, I would dictate this nation to the uh, dedicate this nation to the policy of the good neighbor, the neighbor who resolutely respects himself and because he does so respects the rights of others, the neighbor who respects his obligations and respects the sanctity of his agreements in and with a world of neighbors. Good neighbor policy, I mean, this is very Washingtonian. Look, it's one part of the Roosevelt administration here early on that I actually agree with in not being the imperial power in Latin America. It's about the only thing I agree with. And then we get into the real good stuff. 
He says, if I read the temper of our people correctly, we now realize, as we have never realized before, our interdependence on each other, that we can only that we cannot merely take, but we must give as well. If I if I read the temper of our people correctly, putting his, if I think that I'm right about this because I was elected, then we got to act right now, and we're all interdependent, and I'm going to do some things that you agree with, and they're not going to be stuff that we've ever done before. So he says that if we are to go forward. We must move as a trained and loyal army, willing to sacrifice for the good of a common discipline, because without such discipline, no progress is made, no leadership becomes effective. In other words, we're all drafted into the American army. We are, I know, ready and willing to submit our lives and property to such discipline because it makes possible a leadership which aims at a larger good. You're willing to give up all of your property. You're willing to give up your liberty to me because it's for the national good, because I'm going to be the dictator in chief of America. This is when we hear people say, well, the president is my commander-in-chief. He's not my commander-in-chief. I'm not in the United States Army or Navy or Air Force. Not in any of those things. He's not my commander-in-chief. He's the president of the United States. Now, if I was in the armed forces, then he would be my commander-in-chief. But until that point, he's not. People on the right need to stop saying, though, the president's my commander-in-chief. No, he's not. He's nothing. He's the president. This I propose to offer, pledging that the larger purposes will bind upon us all as a sacred obligation with a unity of duty hitherto evoked only in the time of armed strife. This pledge taken, I assume unhesitatingly the leadership of this great army of our people dedicated to discipline attack upon our common problems. He's going to assume the leadership. He's going to be the commander-in-chief of the American labor force. The American farmer, the American industrial worker, all these. He's now commander-in-chief. of. He just assumes this power. This is why I said Roosevelt is so transformational. Because Trump now is talking about a lot of the same things. Assuming powers he doesn't have. And it all comes from Franklin Roosevelt. Action in this image and to this end is feasible under the form of government which we have inherited from our ancestors. Our constitution is so simple and practical that it is possible always to meet extraordinary needs by changes in emphasis and arrangement without loss of essential form. Our Constitution is flexible. It's a living Constitution. We can do whatever we want with this thing. Don't you know? Don't you know that's the case? We can do whatever we want. So flexible. So, I mean, it's just, we can do anything. That is why our constitutional system has proved itself the most superbly enduring political mechanism the modern world has produced. It has met every stress of vast expansion of territory, of foreign wars, of bitter internal strife, of world relations. It is to be hoped that the normal balance of executive and legislative authority may be wholly adequate to meet the unprecedented task before us. But it may be that an unprecedented demand and need for undelayed action may call for temporary departure from that normal balance of public procedure. And guess who's really to step up if that happens? Franklin Roosevelt. He says, I am prepared under my constitutional duty to recommend the measures that a stricken nation in the midst of a stricken world may require. These measures or such other measures as the Congress may build out of experience and wisdom, I shall seek within my constitutional authority to bring to speedy adoption. But, this is the qualifier, but in the event that the Congress shall fail to take one of, the, on, to fail to take one of these two courses, and in the event that our national emergency is still critical, I shall not evade the clear course of duty that will then confront me, I shall ask Cong the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis, broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency 
as great as the power that will be given to me if we are in fact invaded by foreign foes. So here he is saying, you know what? I'm going to ask Congress to give me this unprecedented power. I'm going to be dictator of the United States and it's going to be all right. And he doesn't get rid of this in his four terms in office, or at least selected four times, four and a little more than a uh, little into the fourth term. He says, for the trust repose in me, I will return the courage and the devotion that, that benefit the time I can do no less. He says, we face the arduous days that lie before us in the warm courage of the national unity. That's very Lincolnian, that particular statement. With a clear consciousness of seeking old and precious metal, precious, I'm sorry, moral values, with a clean satisfaction that comes from the stern performance of duty by old and young alike, we aim at the assurance of our rounded and permanent national life. We do not distrust the future of essential democracy. What is essential democracy anyways? I mean, what does that even mean? It's just a very vague term. The people of the United States have not failed in their need. They have registered a mandate that they want direct, vigorous action. They have asked for discipline and direction under leadership. They have made the present instrument of their wishes. They have made me the present instrument of their wishes in the spirit of the gift I take it. You've made me dictator and I take it. In this dedication of a nation, we humbly ask the blessings of God. May he protect each and every one of us. May he guide me in the days to come. Amen, amen, amen. So not a long speech, but an important one. It's an important one because it really establishes this idea that the American presidency is going to be a dictator. That The American presidency is going to be able to do all the things that Franklin Roosevelt outlines here, which he really can't do because they would be considered unconstitutional. And in fact, Roosevelt was getting beat down so much that he actually favored packing the court with more people so they would vote his way. There's never been a president like Franklin Roosevelt in the last 70, 80 years. I think uh, you can look at some of the earlier presidents that uh, were somewhat like him, uh, but certainly some of the earlier presidents were also very much un unlike him and how they viewed power. All right, so that's this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I hope you enjoyed it. I will see you next time. <laughs>